Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On this episode, I discuss the Robert Hoagland disappearance, the identification of the boy in the box, the murder of Athena Strand, and many other topics, including a milestone for my car. I'm at Denzel. And this is Unfound Live for December 12th, 2022. All right. Hello, everyone. You knew it was unavoidable. 9 p.m. Eastern time on a Monday was eventually going to get here, whether you uh, liked it or not. (laughs) So here we are for the Unfound Live show for December 12th, 2022. And it's good to be here. I've been very busy. Going to tell you about a little bit about it. Tonight, been um, diligently working on Friday's episode. Um, of course, I did the interviews last week. Of course, I'll, I'll talk about that uh, late in this live show, as I usually do. But uh, already working hard on that episode for Friday, and I will reveal what it's going to be. And uh, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how. Uh, this two-part episode, this Friday, next fr- Friday, how they will be received. That's going to be very, very interesting. So gl- uh, thank you all for uh, making time tonight. Uh, as Screaming has already told all of you, please give this video a thumbs up. Do not waste any time. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 until you have given this live show a thumbs up. Also, maybe some of you are finding this live show, this channel, for the first time. It's always possible. So you can hit the subscribe button down in the bottom right-hand corner. Makes it nice and easy for everybody. And hit the little bell button because then you'll be alerted. Should you forget, for example, that the live show happens at 9 p.m. Eastern on Mondays now, YouTube will remind you it's like a little alarm clock. It'll ding. It'll send you a little message. Hey, Ed's on the camera now. You might want to watch. So there you go. 
And if you'd like to go one step farther, further, farther, further, you can hit the join button down below my head where you see my head here going back and forth. And you can join um, and get some extra stuff on this channel that nobody else is getting. So you can hit the join button, find out what all of that is. So uh, let's see who is in here. And I want to thank, uh, I have to thank all the people. If they couldn't make it to the live show on Monday night, all of them now listening to this Unfound Lives, a podcast on December 13th, 2022 and uh, into the future. So I appreciate all of you as well. Thank you. Hello, Karen. Hello, Charles, nephew Charles. I've seen some of the uh, pictures that your mother has been posting from the island of St. Martin, and uh, everybody will find this funny, Uh, but I'm going to just tell Charles. Uh, Of course, Charles' mother, uh, you see him in the chat there, is my sister, Diane. And a few weeks ago, she told me that she was going to be going to the island of St. Martin in the Caribbean uh, for a vacation. And I've actually been to the island of St. Martin way back in 1996, you know, because I'm old. And I went there with the girlfriend I had at the time. Her name is Janie. And uh, we went to the French side. And But I think uh, Charles's mother, my sister, I think she is uh, staying on the Dutch side. And I warned her that uh, she told me they were going to be taking an ATV trip or excursion or something around the entire island. And you should know the island of St. Martin is divided into two countries. Uh, it's, a, it's a territory. It's part French, part Dutch. And you can pretty much go between each side without passing through any customs or anything. like. At least that's the way I remember it from 26 years ago. But I told, I told my sister that, well, you know, um, if you're going to be taking that ATV ride over the entire island and going to the French side, you might want to shield your eyes because on the French side, they don't like clothes too much. <laughs> I told her. So um, there you go. And that just uh, maybe reveals a little bit too much about my past. I do have a very, very funny story. Probably one of my greatest stories of all time, but I can't tell it here because it's certainly not appropriate for this PG uh, rated live show. That is for sure. But um, it is a fantastic story. And in fact, the title of it is, I can't even say the title of it because even that is uh, somewhat questionable, but it is an absolutely true story that happened while I was on uh, the island of St. Martin uh, with uh, the girlfriend at the time, Janie. Uh, This would have been August of 1996. An absolutely true story, but unfortunately I can't tell it here. So Charles, thank you for tuning in. And I hope uh, your mother, my sister, you know, is having a good time with her husband, Jim. Hello, everything. Hello, Mark and Indy. What's up with you? Screaming. Thank you for reminding everybody. Kathy, hello, Kathy. Good to see you. Uh, I've started to call Kathy the unfound historian. Hello, Jasmine, Deborah, Moana with all the, the little pink or purplish hand waves. Love that. 
Shree, thank you for moderating tonight. Assistant Shree M, what's going on? Veronica, Charles says, yep, they are on the Dutch side. And then Charles says, I'll have to check out the French side. Uh, yeah, just be careful where you look, Charles. So what is going on uh, with uh, what has transpired in the life of Ed Denzel since last Monday? You know, I always start out this live show talking a little bit about uh, things that are going on with me and any funny stuff, any interesting stuff. I finally got out and played uh, through the discs around yesterday. And in fact, it had been so long, if you can believe this, it had been so long since I went out even practicing throwing, and I go to this field up on the property of the Sand uh, Key Park, which is just to the north of me. It's up that direction, about a half a mile. And I hadn't thrown in so long that when I woke up today, this I'm left-handed, um, this part of my body right here was sore. That just shows you that, in fact, just touching it today, it's a little tender. Um, that just shows you how long it's been since I've thrown a disc. It's been like six weeks or something. Just haven't got around to it. Um, I'm really not. I was supposed to play in some tournaments, and then I didn't get the practice, so I backed out of them. So um, there's just really been no reason to technically practice. But I went out and I threw perfectly fine yesterday. And I've been riding my bike. I rode my bike today. It's kind of the same pattern. I go down back into these little communities, checking out all the nice houses. And I'm going down to the weight room. Some other things have been taking up uh, my physical exertion time. But I did get out yesterday. It felt good to get out. It was a beautiful day out there to do a little uh, throwing. And for sure... I am not going to miss a uh, a one-day, just one-round tournament that's going to be at the beginning of January. I will surely not miss that. And then there's some other tournaments that are happening in January into February. I'm sure I'm not going to be missing any of those. So I need to kind of get back into the swing of things. Uh, and it's going to be a little tough because uh, I'm actually going to be going up to see my dad for a week uh, at, uh, at Christmas. So that'll certainly get in the way of that. But I'll try to get some practice in. Uh, before I go up there, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. So I was out throwing the discs uh, yesterday, and probably this coming Sunday I'll go play with the club, given it's going to be the last uh, Sunday that I can go, and I still have my bag tag, which I need to turn in, as long as it's not raining or anything, of course. But um, I'll probably go play this coming Sunday morning. It's just... Man, it's tough for me to get up early. I, I'm usually out so late. For example, last night I was out at this um, late late night cafe uh, that I go to quite a bit. It's not that far away. It's usually it's open to like one in the morning, and I was there. I wasn't there until one, but I was there past twelve thirty. And uh, what I was doing there? What was I doing? I was editing this Friday's uh, interview interviews. So that's what I was doing over there, and it's so nice to be able to be able to take to be able to take my some of my work on the road and do this. And some of the people are there do know what I do because I don't know if you call it the barista, not a bartender, but the barista 
at least a few weeks ago, uh, I went up there to order something and he asked me, Hey, uh, you know, you're busy over there. Uh, just, you know, just making conversation, not being nebby or anything, but I said, yeah, I'm a podcaster. Why don't you check it out? And so they know now when I show up with my computer or computers, usually I have two laptops up out at once. They know pretty much what I am working on and who I am. So I'm a night owl. So when it comes to getting up on Sunday mornings, although I was doing it consistently for a while, it's very easy for me to kind of get out of that rhythm. Moana says, uh, I'm also a lefty. Well, I'm not lefty totally, Moana. Um, I am, uh, I write right-handed, I eat right-handed, I shoot a gun right-handed, but athletically, I am left-handed. Go figure. So moving on, I posted a video on my private page. My Hyundai Sonata went over 100,000 miles last night, and I got it on video. Um, when I left here last night to go to that cafe, um, I think it was on 99,996. And I just was getting down here on South Gulf Boulevard before I make a left to go over the second causeway to go over toward that cafe. And I pulled over to the side of the road, figured out how my phone was going to work when it got to 99999. I pulled over, got my car out, and then turned the video on and started driving again. And you can see it click over to 100,000 miles. That might be the first time I've ever done that. But I have nothing bad to say about this car at all. I know that there are some Sonatas certain years where engines are blown up and everything. But I will tell you, my 2016 that I got during the summer of 2017, it was actually a Hertz rental car that I bought, I think it had somewhere around 37,000 miles on it when I got it, and it has just been fantastic. Uh, I, of course, we had that paint problem for most of this year. I got it painted about a month ago, and I actually got the car detailed last week. The car is looking fantastic now, except for that little ding on the back left driver's side bumper. Other than that, the car is looking fantastic. And it's driving fantastic. Had a battery go back. I guess that must have been in September. Seems like yesterday. What a what a day that was. But replaced the battery. Of course, I've re- changed tires on it. But probably the thing that, that boggles my mind the most is that most of the driving that I do is city driving. I've driven it for 63,000 miles the brakes have still not been changed. It just doesn't seem possible. I had, I've owned two Tauruses. They were both 2001. I had a, a Taurus, the engine blew up. I got a Pontiac Grand Prix. The transmission went out on it. And then I got a Ford Taurus again that was like the twin of the one I had before that. And that one had a head gasket go as well. But in all of those cars, those three cars, I the brakes had to be changed like every 25,000 miles or something. They would go through brakes, at least front brakes like this. And I'm not driving the Sonata any differently than I drove those cars. 63,000 miles, no brake changes. It just doesn't seem possible. I don't know what's going on, but it, it's pretty nice. 
Um, it may be because this car has four wheel discs. And so all four wheels are actually contributing to the stopping of the car now. Whereas man, I think that Grand Prix had uh, all discs, but I know I changed the brakes on that too. But those Tauruses in particular were horrible on brakes. Horrible. But they had disc brakes in the front, drum brakes in the rear. And that might have had something to do with it. But the car, the Sonata has absolutely just been spectacular. I would um, recommend those cars to anybody, even if you buy one used. I don't think you should be afraid of buying a a 2016 uh, Sonata or an Elantra or whatever. Uh, I think that that would be a pretty good buy, especially maybe now that used car prices are kind of coming back down a little bit. You might want to think about that. But it's been a fantastic car. It's not the coolest car. It's kind of a geek car. It looks like you're driving a uh, you know a refrigerator or something, and there are like a million of them on the road. But they are good looking. I, it's a geek car, but it's a good looking car too. I think that you, if you switched the badge out on it, if it didn't say it had the Hyundai logo on it. You could put, I think, a BMW logo on it, and I don't think anybody would know the difference. It's pretty good styling and everything, so I like it a lot. I would recommend it to anybody. Moving on, uh, I posted this picture uh, in um, on my private page, on personal page, on Facebook. Finally, after all this time, my building is now – requiring that all deliveries must now be made to the doorstep of, of, um, of the, the, the recipient since COVID got started, of course, back what would be now considered at least in the United States, March, 2020, the, um, they were allowing UPS, Amazon, FedEx, whoever else, they were allowed to just put the packages down on this table in the second floor. And then you'd have to go down there and kind of pick through everything to um, see if you, if you, you got what you ordered. Well, that's been going on. And just this past week, it's now changed back to where it was when I moved in here, where if you ordered something, delivery people are re- required to bring it the whole way up to your, your door. Just seems like this is a long time coming. Um, because here in Florida, unlike a lot of other states, you know, we, for kinda, we kind of, um, kind of, uh, got back to normal a lot faster than a lot of states. So it did seem weird to me that here in this building, that it went for so long that, the delivery people were just allowed to drop the stuff down there and leave. Of course, that's easier for them. <laughs> I'm sure they don't like having to go up to every floor like they used to. But I do think that leaving packages down there, though, did lead to some theft, dare I say it, even though this complex where I live is very nice. I think we did have some thieving going on. And I know for a fact that that I had one thing. I forget what it was now. But I certainly had something stolen. Not a big deal. Wasn't very expensive. But I had something taken off the table down there. 
So finally, uh, they put a sign up for all the delivery people. Everybody's now required. They're now required to, to take everything up to each floor. And that's no fun because this building, each this building and the one next to it, 20 floors. And each floor has eight condos. Now, they're not all lived in, but you can do that math pretty quickly uh, that uh, it's going to take you some time to go through a building if you got a decent amount of packages for each building. So that has finally gotten back to pre-COVID days, and I'm liking that a lot. Mona says she's also a night owl. Okay. Back in the day, uh, I was not. Like when I worked at Star Trek going way, way back, I used to go to bed at 10, 10 10.30. Not these days. Things have certainly changed. And then M says, I have 189,000 miles, no brake changes. What kind of car are you driving, M? No brake changes on a car with 189,000 miles. Okay, you got to tell us all what the kind of car that is. Uh, Moving on. As I stated earlier, I am going to Pennsylvania for Christmas, and I just made the flight arrangements today. I called my dad. He had been, um, you know, uh, gently requesting, <laughs> and he even got, <coughs> he even got his friend Dottie. Uh, maybe a month ago to call me and to tell me, you know, Ed, I think your dad would really like it if you came up for Christmas. And so I finally got around to talking to my dad about it today. And so I will be flying up there next Thursday. So December 22nd and uh, coming back to Florida on December 30th. Uh, Once again, I'm flying and I don't think my dad, uh, there's just too much, there's just too much uh, going on with me in January. And I told my dad that for him to come down, then he said he maybe uh, might come down in February or something. We'll see. Um... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So that's just the arrangements I made today. Looking uh, forward to going up there, I guess. Probably see my sister, Charles's mother, while I'm up there. See my brother, Michael. Maybe see my buddy, Brad. Maybe see my mother's brother, uh, my uncle, Ron, and his wife, Aunt Seal. They always have kind of a uh, party on Christmas Eve. Maybe I'll go over there for that. We'll see what the weather's like. Uh, as I always say, when I'm in Pennsylvania in the winter, it better be none of this drab 30-degree day. I want snow. If I'm going to be there, it just got to snow, snow, snow. And that kind of happened when I went up there late January of this year when my dad lost his driver's license for a few months. Uh, the first two weeks that I was there, it just snowed like nobody's business. 
And then the second two weeks or three weeks, whatever it was, it all melted and then it got ugly. So I'm hoping when I go up there that they have a big, huge white Christmas in Western Pennsylvania. If I'm going to be there, that's what I want it to be. So, um, so that's where I'm going to be. Uh, I'll take, um, I will certainly have next Friday's episode done by the time that I fly out. And that week that I will be there, I will be working on the update episode, which it takes a lot of time to record because it's just all me talking, but it's also kind of easier to put together than your average episode as well. So I'll be working on that while I'm up there and that won't be any, uh, that will you know, that's not going to be any problem, but I will be back here December 30th and hopefully I'll find somebody who wants to invite me to some cool new year's Eve party or something. We'll see. But my dad's real happy about that. When I told him that today, he was uh, really, really happy that I'll be going up there. And who knows what we'll get into uh, while I'm there. But a lot of people to see. Probably go drive around and, you know, he'll probably want, I, I, as I think most of you know, I'm not much of a churchgoer. But he'll probably want to go to church maybe on Christmas Eve or something and, I'll probably go with them and they'll be playing all the music and all that. So he's all excited about that. And because I wasn't there, what was it? I, I think that, a, you know, a couple times that he's come down here, he was actually here for Christmas, but I don't remember what happened last year in 2021. Um, you know, he'd came down here, but he was only here for a few days and left. But that was not, I don't think it was during Christmas. I just forget. But so that's where I'm going to be. And I'm sure the time will fly. Uh, next Thursday, we'll get here very quickly. And I'm sure that week there will go very fast as well. Uh, the cost uh, flying up there and back, flying Spirit Airlines, did about probably as well as you can do these days so um we know that flying uh can get a little expensive these days um let's see here em says ed you might want to tell the listeners what nebby means in pittsburgh is emma is nebby a pittsburgh word nebby means to be um overtly curious <laughs> to the point of nosing in on other people's business. That's what nebby means. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought that that was like a word that uh, goes all over the United States. Maybe not M. And M says uh, Honda Accord. Well, they certainly are good cars. That's certainly. That's what Deborah says. Moana says, Moana says, snowing here right now. And where are you? You'll have to remind me where you are again, Mona. Or Moana. Uh, while time does fly, Kathy, the best car I ever owned was a Honda Civic with a manual transmission, got about 180,000 miles. Yeah, they really don't make a lot of cars with manual transmissions anymore, Kathy. I'd love to have a car with a manual transmission. The last one that I had with a manual was I had a, a Dodge Ram Charger. Uh, the, it's the car I drove to Vegas when I moved there. It was a Ram Charger four-wheel drive with a stick. 
and that is the last manual car. Uh, but I would love to have a, a car with a, a five-speed, six-speed transmission again. Uh, I can drive a stick. I got no problems, even though it's been a while. Uh, Kathy's a hundred cord fishing, finally catching alive. Hey, fishing. What's going on? Good to see you. Kathy says men and I, or I am not never heard that expression. Nebby. Okay. Idaho. It's snowing in Idaho. Okay. Kathy says Nebby. I am not. Shree says I have a Ford Mustang that just sits in the garage, but it can be driven at any moment. And it has 200,000 miles on it. Wow. Shree. I didn't know that. What year is that? Is it just a regular Ford Mustang? Is it a Ford Mustang GT or uh, 280,000 miles? What you're going to have to tell me a little bit more about this Mustang, Sheree. Now you got my attention. I'm a big Mustang fan, even though I haven't owned one in 20 years. But I am a fan. And then finally, uh, to close out the personal part of this uh, live show, just wondering what everybody's taste in Christmas music is out there. Uh, I have to admit that I am a kind of a traditionalist. Uh, When I go on to Spotify and I pick out Christmas music this time of year, than even like last year, I tend to go to the classics, Um, you know, maybe Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or, you know, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, you know, that Jingle Bell Rock. Uh, going back to like the 50s and 60s, much more, maybe Johnny Mathis. Love me some Johnny Mathis when it comes to Christmas time. Love it. Reminds me of high school because when I was a junior in high school, I was in a typing class and the teacher would play Johnny Mathis Christmas music during the class. So while we're practicing hitting the E and the R and the T and everything, he would be playing Johnny Mathis Christmas music. It was fantastic. Even though that teacher was an Uh, (laughs) a-hole. The music was fantastic and it still sticks with me to this day. So, I'm kind of, a, even though I'm an Iron Maiden guy, Def Leppard guy, in fact, I was wearing a Def Leppard shirt today, uh, Judas Priest, Kiss, Megadeth, all that. And I like my prints. I talked about this last week, talked to music taste last week. But when it comes to Christmas music, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist. However, I will tell you the last couple of days, I've also been listening to some Mannheim Steamroller, which uh, is pretty cool. Not... Uh, it's really the only time I would probably ever listen to Mannheim Steamroller, but they have their uh, really techno keyboardish electronic music twist on these uh, Christmas tunes, Deck the Halls and the rest of them. And they started doing this guy started doing this back in the 1980s. Very, very popular, but I'm going to dish out, Uh, a little bit of trivia right here to all of you that I think is going to blow uh, a lot of your minds, but I'm going to read these comments first. Deborah says, uh, Deborah says she would want a 1966 Mustang called of bunny says, um, uh, big Elvis Christmas songs. I can go along with that cult. Kathy love most Christmas music. Okay. Fishing Dolly Parton, hard candy Christmas. I don't think I've ever heard that. 
fishing. Uh, I have nothing against Dolly Parton, but uh, M says Elvis also, so just like Cult of. And then M also says Johnny Mathis, loving the Johnny Mathis Christmas music as well. Um, this is something that's probably going to blow your mind. Of course, the only way I can blow your mind is if you actually know Mannheim Steeroller and you also know this other uh, uh, artist that I'm going to bring up here in a second. Of course, Mannheim Steamroller, if you've ever heard the music, like I stated a moment ago, it's very electronic. They do have traditional inter- instruments, flutes and violins and everything, but there's a lot of um, keyboardish stuff. And especially if you listen to their stuff from the 1980s, you can certainly tell that it's uh, keyboards from the 1980s. And I say that in the nicest way possible. But if you didn't know this, the guy who does Mannheim Steamroller that's been doing this for years and years and years is the same guy who wrote the music for the country, although it's a fake name, the country star, music star from the 1970s, C.W. McCall. Now, maybe you're saying, maybe a lot of you are like, well, who the heck's that? C.W. McCall is the guy who did the song Convoy. We got a little old convoy rocking through the night. We got a little old convoy. Ain't she a beautiful sight? Come on and join our convoy. Ain't convoy. Ain't nothing going to get in our way. We're going to roll this trucking convoy all the re- across the USA. Convoy. Have I listened to that song a few times, do you think? The guy who wrote that music for C.W. McCall, and C.W. McCall was a fake name. Um, he was just a character. The same guy that wrote all that music for C.W. McCall, the guy who wrote the song Convoy, is the same guy who now has been doing Mannheim Steamroller for the last 40 years. That is what we call in the music business range, because those two types of music, they aren't anywhere near each other. But it's the same guy. The, the, the guy who played C.W. McCall is somebody else. But the person who actually wrote the music, wrote the lyrics, not the actual performer, but the person who wrote the lyrics and the music for C.W. McCall is the guy who arranged all of the, who now to this day uh, arranges all of that Christmas music for Mannheim Steamroller. Every time I think about that, it blows my mind. Blows my mind. And I'm a huge C.W. McCall fan. Although I'm not a huge country music fan, I love C.W. McCall because it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek country music, if you've ever listened to it. Um, And it's one of those groups that my dad and I can agree on if we're going to drive somewhere and we're together. We can agree on Elvis and we can agree on C.W. McCall. So um, it's so good. But yeah, uh, fantastic. It's just so fantastic. Let's see what everybody is saying here. Uh, Fishing says, oh, yeah, uh, that's an excellent song by Dolly Parton. And I was laughing. Called Up says, yeah, I know him. No uh, C.W. McCall. Sheree says, listen to Man I'm, Steamro- Man, I'm Steamroller. All the way from Texas to Canada. Not my choice. Also playing was an eight-track of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Look at you, Sheree. I was exposed to a lot as a child. So listen to Mannheim Steamroller. It would be the Christmas music, uh, Cherie. And what were you doing going? Was like like a, a family trip as a kid or what's going on there? 
Uh, Moana says laughing again. M says the 1970s and fishing says trucker songs. They CW McCall actually are trucker songs. They're not technically, I guess uh, it's like a little small niche or niche of country music, trucking songs. Um, so we hit the gate, uh, doing 98 said, let them truckers roll 10, four, man. Do I know that song? That's a little embarrassing, but same guy who does memes, Mannheim Streamroller is the same guy who did CW McCall and says the truckers union was striking and they formed those convoys for protection and unity. I, I know it. Um, and that's why that song came out. And of course, then there was a movie that came out convoy that had Chris Christopherson in it that did pretty well. Also had Burt Young in it. Uh, everybody knows him from the Rocky movies. Also had Ernest Borgnine in it. And it's a pretty decent movie. Pretty decent movie. And I love seeing those old trucks from the 1970s and stuff. It's pretty cool. Uh, Charles says, yep, Uncle Brian introduced me to C.W. McCall. Uh, Uncle Brian is a huge C.W. McCall fan. I've talked about uh, C.W. McCall with Brian often and uh, – of course, uh, Charles. Yeah, Uncle Brian is my brother, Brian. Deborah Bre- Breaker Breaker one nine. This year is the rubber duck. That's right, Deborah. All right, we got we got CW McCall stuff going on in the live show tonight. I couldn't be more pleased. That is fantastic. All right, well, uh, we're gonna put that to the side now. Uh, I'm glad I got everybody in a good CW McCall cool music mood. But uh, so that's the music that I'll be. Uh, listening to the next uh, two weeks, I guess, or something. Uh, classical songs, Johnny Mathis, uh, Bing Crosby, and that, and Mannheim Steamroller. It's going to be a, probably a conglomeration of both. All right, let's move on. Let's get to the true crime, uh, unfound uh, section of tonight's live show, and that's where we will stay here for uh, the rest of the time for the next hour and 25 minutes. I should say that I did not get any questions before the show began. So if anybody wants to ask me a question or two, maybe you want to use the super chat button to do that. If you're really, really feeling up to it, uh, that'll really, really get my attention and something you want to ask about, uh, you know me. Uh, as long as it's PG and it's not too personal, I will attempt to answer it. Of course, staying away from politics and religion, please. Moana says, I relate to horror, tr- horror trucker movies. Candy Cane. Yeah, they're Candy Cane. I don't know that song, Moana. Moving on. Um, of course, there was no poll this week because this past Friday's episode was a unique one. Had... Uh, one of the best friends of the podcast and a woman who has played uh, a huge role in my life over the last two and a half years. Dr. Grace Telesco uh, was the, uh, was the guest this past Friday talking about her, her time in the New York uh, police department, Metro police department talking about her memories of uh, 9-11. In fact, she talked about some people she lost on that day. And she talked about, um, you know, everything that she has done since. You uh, you talk about, um, now some, a lot of those things that she said, I didn't know she was going to say them. Uh, we had not ever really talked about 9-11, where she was, 
that was when when I was interviewing her. Uh, I was hearing it for the first time, just like you got to hear it for the first time on the episode on Friday. But what probably caught my uh, ear the most was like when she got out of the academy and they put her on the beat on foot by herself in the 1980s in New York City. You talk about a rough town. And she talked about that. Um I even stated in the in the interview that you even though this movie was made 10 years before uh, Grace became a police officer in New York City, uh, you want to see what New York City was like until the 1990s. Just look at the movie The French Connection. And I know it's a fiction movie, but just look at the skyline, just look at the streets. And all of that, that's what New York City was. And it, New York City at one time used to be the most dangerous city in the United States. It's not anywhere close to that now. Other cities, unfortunately, have taken that, that title. But until the 1990s came around, that was a one tough beat. And there she was out there by herself on foot. You can't even imagine it so brave and you should know i've i've been with dr telesco of course now two times in person she is not a large woman she's very diminutive she's short uh skinny and i think that's of course the way she was back in the 1980s um i don't know i just uh, talking just hearing her say it i was like oh my gosh how did she, uh, and she said she never had to use her gun once on the beat, her whole, whole career as a police officer. Just amazing. And then her memories of 9-11 and her talking about how she got to that intersection. And I think she said in so many words that if she had gotten to that intersection and turned right, going toward the World Trade Center, that she probably would have gotten killed with a lot of other police officers who were there because they would have been right in the vicinity when the, the towers came down. And I think that that's what she was saying, but instead she turned to made a left and it made all the difference in the world. Um, I thought it was also interesting what she said about being a police officer and how it's like hours of boredom accentuated by seconds of tail of terror and that's something you usually hear about uh, pilots. That's what pilots will tell you if they ever explain, you know, what it's like being a pilot. Hours of boredom accentuated by seconds of sheer terror. And so uh, I thought that that was interesting. And it was also very interesting to me to hear her talk about um, getting into education uh, even going back to her academy of days and uh, going back to the, of course, being trained in the academy, becoming a police officer, and then going back to the academy and being an instructor there and rising the whole way to the level of lieutenant. And if you're wondering how high lieutenant is, I know this is once again fiction again, but you have to remember that Columbo in, this, in the, the series, the TV series, he was also a lieutenant. Of course, that was LAPD but it's pretty high. It's pretty high up. 
And so to hear her talk about education being so important to her and then continuing that after she retired from the NYPD and now what she does, that certainly speaks to me because as I've stated many times, education for disappearances is very important to me. It's not enough. I think I've made that clear over the past six plus years that it's not enough for me to interview these guests and publicize these disappearances and let these people tell the stories for themselves and go all over this intricate information better than anybody else does it. I'm hoping all of you are learning something too. I hope. Because I continue to believe that the public getting a better understanding of why disappearances happen and how they get solved will eventually cut down on disappearances happening. And disappearance, it will increase the percentage of them that get solved. I don't know if we're ever going to get to 100%. But education is the way to do that. And so it's just amazing to me. It's just so weird to me that you wouldn't think uh, that maybe Dr. Telesco and I would have a lot in common. She, a woman growing up in uh, Bensonhurst part of Brooklyn, which is very, as, as I've learned, is a very, very rough part of Brooklyn in New York City. In fact, uh, Bensonhurst is mentioned in a uh, public enemy rap tune going back to that uh, time. And uh, being that she was a police officer, I had no ever any aspirations. I would have never made it as a police officer for a whole bunch of different reasons. And But some things that um, that where we certainly meet is education. Education is important to her. Education is important to me. And on that, uh, it just feels like we're twins. And it's so interesting to me that uh, two people who maybe in a lot of other aspects of their lives don't have any, a lot in common. Um, I don't think that she would mind me saying we also have uh, we can't we didn't want to talk about it in the area, but we also have a love of guns. <laughs> we couldn't talk about that, but there's that. But other than that, um, to be able to bond with somebody like that when you really don't have a lot of other things in common, um, we also have filmmaking in common as, as well. Uh, you know, fascination with that. I don't know if I'm as fascinated with it now as I used to be, but. It's just very interesting to me. And um, it certainly was a good thing back in 2020, it would have been now, with my former uh, assistant, Natasha, who I talked to once in a while. Uh, she was the one that actually reached out to talk Dr. Telesco way back in like February, March of 2020. And that's how this all got started. And now I've been to Nova Southeastern twice. They've treated me so well down there. And I hope that through that interview, you got to know her uh, as well as I know, know her being in person with her, talking to her one-on-one. -on -one. 
And I think everybody loved that interview. And it was so important to me that I wanted to make it a Friday episode, usually cover disappearances, but I thought getting to know her and everybody getting to know her uh, was important enough to make it a regular podcast episode. And of course I run things, so I'm going to do what I want. So there's that. Um, great show with her fishing says, hello, Deborah with the little uh, birdie. M says, that was a great interview. Ed, thank you. Uh, M says, shocking story. I love when she uh, most of made most of my arrests were drug arrests. That's, that's right. And that can't be easy. M could not be easy. And here, uh, Ed says, uh, M says, Ed, here's a question I thought of when I listened to the podcast. Have you ever thought of teaching college? I have. The issue, M, is that, um, as Dr. Telesco also find out, I mean, we really didn't get into, we really didn't want to get into that. Uh, all the places she kind of bounced around where before she found her spot at Nova Southeastern, but you have to understand something. Maybe people don't realize this, but if you're not uh, a tenured professor at one of these schools, if you're what they call an, like an adjunct professor or an assistant or something like that, you make like next to nothing when it comes to money. In fact, I, I looked at it and if I wanted to, for example, try to teach a disappearance class at a, at a school as a, what they would say, once again, as an adjunct professor, because I don't have any teaching credentials. I didn't go to school for education. I don't have a master's in education or anything else. Um, for a semester, an adjunct professor only makes like $2,000 or something. So for like three and a half months of work, uh, it's like $2,000. Like I said, I've looked into it. I mean, I make way more than that doing Unfound every just for a month. So, and plus it's a lot of work. So I think, you know, going in that direction and wanting to speak at schools and maybe, you know, and making money do that, I think I'm just going to have to be some sort of uh, guest professor as I have been doing. Because to actually become a professor who is actually part of the curriculum and everything, it really doesn't pay off. And you really have to work many years before they would ever consider you to be part of the faculty. And, and we know, hey, and I have nothing against it. There's a lot of professors out there who make a ton of money. Happy for them. But to get to that point, you really have to uh, take your lumps. And, uh, and in fact, as you know, one of my assistants, Eric Grabowski, Dr. Eric Grabowski, Grabowski, he is a college professor, and he and I have talked about this. So the answer is yes, M. It just is not financially feasible at this point. But I would never rule out appearing for a couple days and getting uh, paid to do that like I did at Nova Southeastern University just a couple months ago. But to actually be part of the faculty or something, it's just monetarily, it's just not worth it. I, and the, all the time and work and everything, 
<clears throat> I really don't know if it'd be able to do the podcast anymore to tell you the truth. TD, I think the P, uh, I think the uh, public enemy lyric was about Yusuf Hawkins. He was shot in that area. That's right, TD. Look at you going back. And that's right. It was. Uh, and she said her neighborhood was the neighborhood from Saturday Night Fever. Yep. With the pizza place and all of that. I looked all of that up, Em. You're right. You're right. And yeah. And look at New York City in the movie Saturday Night Fever. And just a few years after that, uh, Grace Telesco, a uh, young lady, was going out there to walk the beat all by herself. Crazy. Good for her. Okay, so fantastic. And I don't think we're doing – something came up. We were going to do a show in in, uh, in January, but I don't think that's going to happen. I'll have to check back in her with her for that. Moving on, update episode number 13 is what I'll be putting together while I am up seeing my dad. I'll start working on that probably. I think I'm going to be able to get the entire part two of this coming two-parter done this coming weekend. So I'll be able to devote some time next week to start going over what updates are going to get done, start putting that together. And um, and then complete it while I'm up at my dad's place. And as you know, I've done episodes up there. I've edited episodes up there. I was up there for five weeks the beginning of this year and continued to uh, interview people and, 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 and all of that. So update episode number 13, if you can believe it. And Sheree, I know you're in here moderating. Um, was it not your idea to do these updates in the first place? Was that, I think it was you, right? I think the way that happened, uh, going back to the very first update episode, which, what, when did that happen? Maybe 2018, maybe Sheree, maybe Kathy, you remember, uh, too, is that something happened. I was supposed to interview somebody and, as still happens to this day, the interview fell through, got cold feet, no called, no showed or something. And I needed, I don't like missing Fridays. You know that. And so I started thinking, well, what else can I do? And I think Sheree that maybe you were the one who gave me the idea. Well, you know, maybe you should do an update episode. Just go back and look at all the disappearances you've done to this point and give updates on the ones that have updates. I think that's how that happened. Maybe sure if I'm remembering that wrong, you know, you point me in the right direction. But that's how the update episode started. It was not something that I ever intended to do. But then it became a necessity. And then I, I, I discovered how much everybody liked that. And... I said, well, maybe we need to make this a regular thing. And then I figured out what would be a good span in between each episode. And that ended up being four months. And that's how we now, I guess, maybe starting in 2020 or maybe even 2019, we now do them every four months. End of April, end of August, end of December. End of April, end of August, end of December. And this was something that when I started this podcast back in 2016 was not something that was on my mind at all. 
just funny how these things work. Now it has become an integral part of uh, the overall umbrella of all the unfound stuff. And I think it's one of the things that all of you enjoy the most because you love hearing updates on on disappearances, whether, of course, remains have been found or whatever else is going on. And I tried to not miss anything, even though it's getting tougher and tougher because we are now up to 270. Well, this Friday, it'll be 276 disappearances. So every update episode, it gets a little tougher and a little tougher to make sure I don't miss anything as regarding updates. And unfortunately, that that list that I read at the end continues to get longer and longer and longer, but that's the way it's going to be. So uh, December 30th is the next update episode, number 13, lucky number 13. And really right now, I cannot tell you how uh, long it's going to be. I really don't know until I really start looking at everything. Kathy says, I didn't find Unfound until January 2019. I'm remembering that now, Kathy. So yeah, you were not around for the first maybe couple update episodes, maybe. Okay. Jessica, Jessica, glad to catch you live. Hope you've been well. I have been well, Jessica. Thank you for asking. Been good. Feeling good. Allergies have been kicking in uh, a little bit because we've got this kind of red tide thing going on. It doesn't look bad out there, but I keep reading about it. I keep hearing about it. And that can cause some people, uh, their allergies to kick up. And I can tell you the last few weeks, my allergies, I've been taking some Allegra to kind of get me all evened out. Because uh, if not, I just don't feel like myself. Uh, but other than that, Jessica, I've been fantastic. Uh, moving on, the unfound now, uh, very strange. Uh, this is not something that I could have ever predicted, but you know the monthly series that appears right on on this unfound podcast channel every month. I've been doing that since the summer of 2020. Uh, I decided to discuss the disappearance of Elizabeth Capaldi, who disappeared in Sellersville, Pennsylvania, back at the beginning of October. Why I created it, recorded it, and it was available for the members of this channel. And if you don't know, they get the episode first. Then roughly a week later to 10 days later, I release it to all of you. Well, I never could have predicted when I made that recording. Must have been like November 29th, something like that. That it would be solved before it would, it would actually get to all of you, the public. Because what happened is that I did the recording, and maybe some of you have watched it already, and you probably have, if you've looked it up, you're probably saying, why didn't Ed mention that it was solved? Well, the reason I didn't mention it was solved is when I made the recording, it wasn't solved. Well, what has happened, and it's kind of what I predicted right at the end of, you know, um, when I do those Unfound Now episodes, I kind of give some analysis at the end, maybe make a little bit of a prediction. Sometimes, and I certainly got this one right. It turns out that her husband killed her. I predicted it right. It was a the man said type of disappearance, and uh, he just this past week. So for all of you, it became public. That video became public. I think on Saturday. Well, two days before that, 
uh, her husband um, took police to where he had disposed of her body. Now, I don't know any of the particulars about what all had happened, and um, but I think they said it was like near an airport. He disposed of her near an airport or something. But I was right. And I kind of went the first time I even looked at it, that it kind of did feel like a man said that you know, she's he said that she did this, he said she did that, and there were no facts to back it up. In addition, it was her daughter or their daughter who called it in, even though Elizabeth and her husband were living together. Well, if she went missing, why didn't he call it in? And uh so if you want to now look that up, uh, if you haven't listened to the Unfound Now episode, I urge you to do so because it is educational. And then you can also do a Google search for Elizabeth Capaldi and find out that her husband is now in custody. It's not something I ever could have predicted um, when I did the recording like two weeks ago. But these things happen. I guess that was due to happen sooner or later where I made a recording and before it gets to the public uh, that it gets solved. On that topic, moving to the next uh, piece of unfound news that I want to talk about, kind of the same thing. Uh, there's a uh, man, Michael McKenney, who went missing in Ohio a couple years ago. And I have been in contact with his mother. I've talked to her a couple times. And this is going to be a disappearance that I was going to be covering in January, given that we have this two-part episode and then uh, the unfound episode or update episode number 13. The soonest I would have been able to cover this disappearance is in January of 2023. Um, I spoke to his mother, Yolanda, a couple times. And in fact, I just spoke to her a week ago. Well, unfortunately, on Wednesday, uh, his remains were found uh, near where his car was parked at this park in Ohio. And this is maybe, oh man, I, I was trying to think about this. This is certainly not the first time it happened and certainly not even the second. This might be like maybe the fourth or fifth time that I've been talking to somebody in a family and in the process of preparing maybe to do an episode on the disappearance, the missing person is found. And it's been, of course, unfortunately, the person has been deceased. I think that this has happened four or five times now. I don't know if that's a lot. I don't know if that's more or less than you would actually think. But this is another one of those. I, I have to admit, now that his remains have been found, I'm not surprised by this at all. It seemed fairly clear to me that Michael was going through some things. He had asked his sister for some money and... No, it just didn't seem like he was in kind of a very difficult uh, place in his life. He had had some drug issues in the past and he, he had bought this car and then it was found in this park, Houston park. It's not spelled like the city, but it's H U E S T O N. And they had done a search back at the time. I don't know where they searched. She'd kind of, she was kind of, didn't want to really want to tell me what was going on, specifics on that. But then I talked to her last Monday, and then a search party went out on Tuesday or Wednesday of last week and found them. So very sad. So you can, uh, if you'd like to look that up, it's been uh, news uh, in, in Ohio. Michael McKenney, you spell his last name, 
M-C-K-E-N-N-E-Y. Pretty much like Elizabeth Capaldi's uh, disappearance that we now know as a murder, um, which or I had a pretty good handle on it. I now I think I'm now shown that I had a pretty good handle on Michael McKinney's as well. I do not think that there was any uh, foul play involved, and I really did believe that uh, he would be found in that park somewhere, even though they had searched this park before. Now, why they missed it before. I don't know. Um, all I've done so far in the last week is sent condolences to Yolanda. And maybe somewhere down the road, I will get to talk to her about how this all happened. But I'm certainly not going to bother her with that right now. And Julie says, interesting. Yeah, just timing. That's all it is, Julie, I think is timing. It's it's bound uh, to happen. You cover 270-some disappearances. You are going to run into situations where you're talking to somebody and a disappearance gets solved in the meantime. Uh, it's just, just, I guess it's just the odds of it happening. I think that happened, um, that also happened with the disappearance of Eric Pratt, P-R-A-C-H-T. Uh, in Colorado, where I had talked to his family. We were going to do an interview. And then they backed out because they were planning a new round of searches because the searches had already been done. Nothing was found anywhere. And then they were going to do an interview and they say, you know what? They didn't want to do it because they were arranging and they just didn't want to do an interview right at that time. And it was during the course of doing the second round of searches is when Eric was found. Unfortunately, he had committed suicide and why he was missed the first time around. I don't know. I have never uh, asked them about that. And that's been a couple years now. So there's another example of it happening where I think had that second round of searches been unsuccessful, I'd like to think I'm pretty sure, 90% sure, that I would have eventually interviewed them. So that's another instance where uh, a remains being found were happening in the process of putting an episode together. Finally, regarding all of um, any unfound news stuff that I want to talk about tonight, and we'll get into some more national news stuff. Uh, finally, and I really don't uh, want to get into the exact words or anything, but I thought you'd all want to know that the sister of Janelle Matthews uh, sent me a very kind um, message through Facebook uh, this past week. I'm not going to get into what it says. All I'm just going to tell you is that it was very kind, uh, and she thanked me, and we have like just a couple back and forths. So that was very unexpected, as I've stated many times. I've never spoken to anybody in Janelle's family. I didn't know if that was appropriate or not. I did see her family both times, although I don't. Did I see her sister? I don't remember that, but. I did see Janelle's parents when I went out both times for both trials. I never exchanged a word with them. Although this second time I did exchange like a, a, a kind smile with her mother. She walked by me. We had a, a kind of our eyes connected and it's just a smile. But other than that, I've had no interaction with any of the family until 
uh, Janelle's sister, Jennifer, uh, sent me a message. Must have been the end of last week. And so she thanked me. And I, I guess I could say what I said. I told her, had it been a hung jury and they were going to do it a third time, I would have gone out there again. So, and that's the truth. So let's move on. Uh, as far as uh, national news, I have to just talk about this for a moment. As far as I can tell, there's still no new news regarding the Ida, the, the massacre of um, the four students at the University of Idaho. I know there are a lot of headlines. I know there are a lot of videos being made. I know there's a lot of words being typed. It's clear to me that there is no new news. Uh, it seems to me, we talked about last night for the think tank, patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. If you'd like to be part of the think tank, uh, last night, we actually, being that we didn't have a disappearance to talk about, we talked about some of these national news items that are out there. And this is certainly one of them. And as I stated last night, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot going on. We came, I think, to the consensus conclusion last night that all of this stuff about the police not knowing what they're doing and the parents being outraged and all of this is somewhat unwarranted. Uh, I realize that the families are not in a position to um, think clearly. They got a lot of emotions going on. I feel horrible for all of them. So we're not, so we can't expect them to be rational about things. But everybody else should be very rational. And the headlines I see all over the place, we have these former FBI investigators and former detectives from city police. Well, they don't know what they're doing. This should be done. It's all crazy. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. We don't know what's going on. Uh, and it's just, as I stated, if some of you read my newsletter, hopefully you did. It all goes back to what I read, wrote in that newsletter that came out December 1st. My frustration with any type of media covering any types of crimes. It's all totally overblown. And the more they talk about it, the more they show they don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about the topic. And even these people they get, former FBI investigators, these people will say anything. And or to quote Howard Beale from the movie Network, they'll tell you any crap. You and that's not what he says, but you know what he said. They'll tell you any crap you want to hear. Um, we have un unrealistic expectations for uh, unrealistic expectations regarding all of this. Why? Because. TV shows do not portray crime and how it's solved the right way because it's all entertainment. It's not factual. And we just have too many media companies that are making too much money out of posted headlines out there. They realize that everybody wants to see it, so they want to keep it out there. They want to keep to get their clicks and their shares and everything else, so they will write anything. And I just hope that there are enough people out there smart enough to realize this. Do I think that the, uh, these murders will be solved? 
I don't know. I, I don't know. What I think is that a lot of people think, well, four people were killed. It was a knife. There was blood everywhere. I mean, this should be just as easy as the snapping of the fingers. That doesn't mean anything. None of that means anything. Original Night Stalker got away with many murders. Now, granted, it was in a different time. There wasn't DNA evidence, which is what eventually caught him. But none of this really means anything. And in fact, last night during the, the think tank, we were talking about the murder of Missy Beavers. Remember that? It's coming up on the seven-year anniversary, by the way, in April. They have her killer on video inside that church, of course, wearing all that police riot gear and everything. They have her killer on video. They know how Missy was killed. And, and they know a lot of stuff about that murder. Still unsolved. So when it comes to the families being outraged, I, I know they're emotional, but as you've heard me state um, more than once on this live show, going back to the very time that this live show got started five years ago, is that I am not a big fan of families criticizing police publicly. I do not, although we can certainly be critical and I think we do that in interviews, but I really try to keep it under control in these interviews because that it doesn't do any good. This is exactly why I stated uh, back when the uh, Jennifer Kessie's family took the Orlando, Orlando Police Department to court to get all those files, kind of acting like, well, they're withholding stuff from us. And once we get that paperwork, we're going to be able to solve it. Well, they've had that paperwork for a couple of years and her disappearance isn't any further along. So what was this all about? Now, I realize police make mistakes. There are corrupt police officers and, and, and everything else. But uh, I hope if anybody in any of those families watches this or if you're watching this and you know one of those families – you should have them um, watch this live show. And what I would say to them is you can't be doing this. Do not be goaded by the media into saying all these things publicly. Don't do that. I know you're emotional. I know it hurts. I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but I've been interviewing people exactly like you for the last six over six years. It's horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But you cannot be doing these things. You have to remember, the media, the way they are doing this, are not your friend. They'll happily put a camera in front of you to act like all... And the only person it's helping are those media companies, the reporters. It's not helping you. It's not helping the investigation. And that's all you should care about. I know it's, I can't imagine the situation you're in, but this is not the way to go about this. Um, do not be fooled by watching these news shows and seeing these FBI investigators and everybody going on there and saying how the investigation is being bungled and everything. Here's what I'm here to tell all of you. None of those people know anything that's going on in the investigation. Nothing. They're just talking heads. They're just taking up time. 
They're just saying things because they want to continue to have their media contracts with those media companies. That's it. Do not be goaded into this by them because they need minutes to fill up. Don't do that. And that's what I, although it doesn't come up a lot with the guests that I talk to, uh, interview for Unfound, but what I always tell them is, you don't, don't let the police push you around, but on the other hand, do not criticize them publicly necessarily either. You be nice, you be firm, don't swear at them, say thank you, and please smile, but always be firm. And if you really, really think that they're blowing you off, then you go to the city council. Then you go to the mayor. Then you go to your uh, representative. You go up the, the chain of command. You don't go to some local TV station and get a camera in your face and turn the, you know, the camera turns on and then you blast it. That's, not, I, that's, that's great theater, but I don't know how much is going to get done because of that. So... Uh, Shree says, uh, well, Jasmine says that was nice for her. Yes. Uh, Janelle's, uh, sister. Yes. Uh, Shree says, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Sorry. I didn't tell you, Shree. <laughs> but yeah, she sent me a very nice message. Uh, very nice. Deborah, uh, says, I hate to say this, but I have a strange feeling. One of the people that are still living may have had, that are still living. You mean living in the apartment may have had a hand in it. Okay, Deborah, using a knife is so up close and personal and none with such rage. I think that the person or persons would be very tired after that. Just depends, uh, Deborah. Maybe they were on something. Maybe they were on meth or speed or something. It's just, it's just hard to say. Um, I don't think she would be mind me saying this, but I've been uh, behind the scenes through Messenger. I've been talking to former guest of the program, Reggie, who is the guest for the Kyle Fleischman episode and she's been really into this and um you know there's this neighbor who had these charges against them 10 years ago certainly there are a lot of shady people in moscow idaho certainly there's no denying that but there are shady people in every town that doesn't mean anything you know we only know about these shady people because people are looking into them we're not looking at shady people in any other town because no massacres have been occurred have occurred there, but there are shady people with felonies and everything in those towns too. So, um, just have to keep that. in mind. Okay. Uh, moving on to something I have to talk about the disappearance and then reappearance of Robert Hoagland. Um, I don't think this was ever on my list of disappearances uh, that I was going to cover. Maybe eventually. I never uh, attempted to contact anybody in his family. I don't think that any of my assistants, Sheree or Emily, for example, ever tried to contact anybody in his family. So um, maybe we would have gotten to his disappearance uh, if he had gone, um, not been found. But he was. So I'm going to read this article. A man who disappeared from Connecticut nearly a decade ago was found dead in New York under what he under where he had been where he had been living under a new name. Robert Hoagland was reported missing in Newtown, Connecticut on July 29th, 2013, after he failed to pick up a family member from the airport and did not show up to work per NBC News. His car's wallet, cell phone, wallet and cell phone and medication were all found left at his house and police reported that he was last spotted at a gas station in the town. 
his disappearance launched a high-profile nationwide investigation with people from around the United States reporting sightings of him, and he was even featured on the investigation discovery show Disappeared, and I've seen that episode. No one knew what happened to Hoagland until his, this week when the Sheriff's Department in Sullivan County, New York, found him dead at a residence in Rock Hill, New York. He had been living under a pseudonym Richard King at the time. The sheriff's department had trouble identifying the man at first until they found documents in the home linking him to the name Robert Hoagland. It worked uh, with detectives. Uh, they worked together to confirm that Richard King and Robert Hoagland were the same man. Police said Hoagland had been living in Sullivan County masquerading under the new name since around November 2013. So who knows what he was doing between July and November. There were no signs of foul play nor a criminal aspect at the scene, uh, according to the sheriff's department, but his body has been sent to the Sullivan County coroner for an autopsy to determine his cause of death. The man's son, Christopher Hoagland, told NBC News the family is still processing what happened. It's pretty confusing, he said. We're trying to handle it right now, to be honest. Haven't really figured out any details. He added that he had no idea why Hoagland decided to leave Connecticut without telling anyone and take on a new name. Uh, Once I heard this, I went back uh, and kind of looked over all of the details again, went kind of went back, went on to newspapers.com, found some of the articles written about his disappearance back in 2013. Um, I really don't know where to find disappeared episodes online anywhere. I know probably Hulu or something has it. But um, I don't have that. But um, so I couldn't go back and watch the disappeared episode. But however, I did watch it. I remember seeing it whenever it came out years ago. I have to tell you, I'm not surprised by this. I don't know had we covered the disappearance, uh, the odds that I would have put on him walking away from his life and still being alive. But it certainly would have been a huge consideration. Mainly because it did not seem like any addictions, although it did seem like at least one of his sons was mixed up in some drug stuff. And in fact, I think at the time they even thought could one of the son or one of his friends have caused this guy's disappearance. Um, didn't seem to have any mental issues, no money issues, just a regular family guy. I think that probably I would have been very open to the idea that, yeah, he just walked off. Now, I don't know if I would have thought that he would have been that close to where he used to live. I don't know if I would have thought that he was still alive here in 2022. I can't guarantee any of that. But I'm pretty sure I would have just decided, you know, it just seems like he just walked off for some reason. And I don't think, you know, I might have thought, yeah, he's probably – Still alive out there. Uh, here's what I did do in addition to that. Uh, I use mainly, um, Jasmine is saying, uh, Disappeared is on Discovery Plus. Once again, that's not something I have. I have Netflix, I have Amazon Prime, and I have Disney Plus um, for the kid in me. Uh, here's what is something I did do over the last couple days, kind of to just try to uh, make sense of this. I went onto one of the databases I used and put in Richard King, uh, any Richard Kings living in Rock Hill North in New York. Nothing came up. So not only was he living under a pseudonym, but 
uh, for all this time, but somehow he was able to keep his name off of any databases that would automatically appear on databases that you can find online. Of course, you have to pay for subscriptions for them. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, I don't know if this is going to come out or not, but what was he doing for money? Uh, did he get a new social security card? Did he get a new driver's license? These are all things that would be very interesting to me as a guy who studies disappearances. It certainly is noteworthy that looking up Richard King on this particular database, which is pretty, pretty good. It's not 100% accurate. I've found mistakes in it over the few years that I've been using it, but I would certainly put its accuracy and complete coverage up to about 99%. Richard King, uh, uh, Robert Hoagland posing as Richard King was not on this database. So how did he do that? It'd be very, very interesting to me to find that out. Although I don't know if we ever will, but it might help us. So even if, I guess what I'm saying here is even if we knew for sure that Robert Hoagland left his life to start a new life, and even if we knew the name that he was living under, and Richard King is a fairly common name in the United States, we still would not have been able to find him because he was not listed on a database for anywhere in New York or anywhere else. So how did he do that? Now, you're probably wondering... Uh, are there any unfound disappearances where it's a possibility? Maybe let's just say similar circumstances. Are there any unfound disappearances that kind of had similar kind of had uh, have similar circumstances to uh, Robert's? Well, I'm just going to name a few. Trevor Nichols. Uh, you remember he was the guy in the army. Coincidentally, also in New York, he was getting transferred, I think, to Kansas. Disappeared somewhere in there. Uh, Patty Taylor, she was at a girls' school uh, in the early 80s in Tulsa, Oklahoma, seemingly ran off from that girls' school. I'm certainly open to that. Judith Emke, you might remember her. I think that was from Tennessee. Uh, she was married but might have had something going on with her next-door neighbor. She had also she was a nurse, and she had told some other nurses that she might just run away all by herself. Mary Jane Van Gilder, the most, uh, the oldest disappearance that Unfound has ever covered. I think a lot of people believe uh, aren't aren't really buying into the foul play angle for her either. She might have walked off, and back in the 1940s, she could have easily changed her name, and nobody would know. And then, even um, maybe more recently, I certainly could be open to the idea that Chase Lackey also walked off, given. Um, what he was doing and how he was hiding a lot of stuff from his family. And maybe he thought that that was going, he was going to get caught up in all of that and scooped up all the cash that he was making, selling marijuana without his family knowing and has gone somewhere and is now living under uh, a new identity. That would not surprise me at all. So those are some of the uh, disappearances Unfound has covered that kind of feel to me very much like Robert Hoagland's. Um, 
Jasmine says, I can't believe he did this. His own family and had his son Max under suspicion with having something to do with his disappearance. That's right. I know, Jasmine. Just, um, it just doesn't seem to me like some sort of uh, mental disconnect or something mental or anything like that. It seems to me that uh, Robert uh, chose to do this all on his own. I think what this also shows is something else. That, and it's something that I've brought up many times, is that you can show a missing person's face all over the place. Disappeared, plays internationally. Robert Hoagland's face is out there. And nobody in Rock Hill, New York, thought he was the missing guy, thought Richard King was the missing guy. This is also why we don't, if you'll notice this, uh, this is one of the reasons we don't uh, pay too much attention to what missing people were wearing when they went missing. We don't get too much into descriptions. Uh, certainly sometimes we post pictures. I do post pictures and some of the YouTube videos that I make or when Natasha used to do it, we do that. But I'm inclined to believe that putting pictures out there of missing people is highly overrated. Uh, posting flyers and all that. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it happens maybe at least a couple times a year. But it's just not a reliable way to find missing people. I mean, yeah, I guess you have to put their pictures up there. But it goes back to what I've talked about. It's just not how the, the human mind works. If you show me the picture of a missing person right now, and then a week from now, I go to Disney World, and I'm just walking through there, and that missing person walks by me, even myself, as a guy who does this for a living, probably not going to recognize the person. But this proves it. He was just not that far away. His picture was out everywhere. He was on the news. He was on Disappeared. And still... The next door neighbors or other people around whomever was around him in Rock Hill did not put it all together. V frustrating, but that's just how the mind works. Uh, Kathy says Robert had disappeared before years ago, but returned after three weeks. He changed professions a few times. Yeah. So maybe that was a test run, Kathy. Maybe. Let's move on to this Athena Strand. Um, of course, murdered by. Uh, somebody working for FedEx. Tanner Lynn uh, Horner told investigators he accidentally struck Athena Strand with his delivery vehicle. I talked about this last week, but now we have a story. I'm not saying we believe it. At the child's Cottondale home and later strangled her with his hands so she wouldn't tell her father what happened, according to the unaffidated David. Horner stated he was backing up in the FedEx truck. He accidentally hit Athena with a truck, but she was not seriously injured. He panicked and put her in the van. Horner stated Athena was alive at the time, talking to him, and told her, told him her name was Athena. Horner stated he attempted to break Athena's neck to kill her. Horner stated when he attempted to break Athena's neck, it did not work, so he strangled her with his bare hands in the back of the FedEx van. He told investigators he strangled her because she was going to tell her father about being hit by the FedEx truck. The defendant was operating. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just reading what the, the story says. 
The federal, uh, the FBI was able to work with big top spin, the contracting company delivering packages for FedEx to determine the vehicle that had made the delivery to Strand's home Wednesday, November 30th. Investigators were able to determine video was available from the truck and reviewed the footage. The FBI employee found that the driver had taken a girl, young girl who was visually similar to Athena in his van. The driver was seen on video talking to her in the van. Uh, when investigators located Horner, he told them he had taken Strand and that she was deceased. Horner told investigators. Later took investigators to where he had left the seven-year-old's body in the water off County Road 4668 near Boyd. Homer remains in the Wise County Jail with bond set at $1.5 million. Uh, we talked about this last night on the Think Tank. Once again, patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast if you'd like to join the Think Tank. Uh, we decided that none of us believe this at all. What he's saying is he hit into this girl. She couldn't have been too injured. She was talking, so he says. And I guess because he was afraid he was going to lose his job because he backed into her that he had to kill her. I don't uh, – They. I guess they have this video – I'm not inclined to believe any of this. So we must be open to the other idea. And this is something that we got into. And this is what makes the, the think tank so great and how we throw around ideas and everybody has different points of view. Um, more inclined to believe that this guy is just a guy who had been maybe cruising around for a while, for a while, just hoping to run into a little girl to kill. Because I asked the question last night during the think tank, did this guy really go out that morning of delivering boxes with the intent on killing a little girl or not? And the answer we kind of came to was yes, he did. But not necessarily on that particular morning. It very well may be that that has been on his mind for a long time, but he was never offered the opportunity, never presented itself. But then it did. So it wasn't like he just happened to pick that day that he was going to kill a little girl if he ran into one. He might have been thinking about this for years. And there is that story out there that years ago he had uh, raped a woman and she wasn't believed. I don't know what to make of that one way or the other, but I'm not really thinking that anybody is really believing that he killed this little girl because he backed into her. That's what insurance is for. You back into her, you apologize, you call you call um, 911, you fess up to it, she's okay. The contractor's insurance, there's nothing that was going to come out of this guy's pocket to pay for any of this. He's certainly insured. Now, he might have lost his job, but there are a lot of jobs out there. And he just did it because he wanted to kill her. He'd Why what gets into these people's minds is beyond me. As I stated last night, I mean, in contrast, a guy like myself who is 52 – you know, I'm going out into the world, not every day because I'm a homebody, but when I go out maybe once or twice a week, when I go out, 
I'm looking for an opportunity to meet a woman who's going to, uh, you know, change my life and make it better and have us have a great relationship. Whereas this guy uh, is going out thinking about running into a little girl so he can kill her. This is just something I don't know. Or I guess we have to think about it this way. It's certainly possible that he's done this before. I think they, did he always live in this area? Did he move there from somewhere else? Uh, could it be that this is not his first time doing this? I think we have to be very, very open to that idea because he backed into her so he had to kill her. I just don't know if that that really flies at all. I mean, he tried to break her neck and then he decided to strangle her. It's very sad. I just, I just, but when it comes to disappearances and, um, you know, we have to think about this because this was a chance meeting. If that little girl isn't out there, he probably delivers that package and just keeps going. Still has the on his mind of killing a little girl. It's just not Athena Strand. Maybe it would end up being somebody else, some other little girl. Or if she had been out there and he just drove right by, maybe he would have said, I got a chance, but then something might have gotten in the way. But he just happened to live her to that house, and she's out there, and this all happened. And this is what makes analyzing disappearances so so uh, difficult because generally, including myself, I think we like to rule out coincidences. This was a coincidence. She just happened to be out there. He just happened to be out there. Neither of them could have predicted the other was going to be there, but they were, and it was disastrous. This makes, uh, like I said, it makes analyzing some of these disappearances uh, very difficult. We might think about a Jason Jolkowski. Maybe something like that. But very sad. Very sad. But certainly, I'm hoping they're looking at this guy's entire uh, work record and where he's lived before because this has all the makings of, you'd think, a guy who had done this before. Uh, Jasmine says, uh, I don't believe this. At all, also, because if he would have told the dad, he might have gotten in, he might not have gotten into any trouble. Yeah. I mean, people are backing into little kids all the time. You know, you look in your rear mirror and you don't see them because they're too short and you back in. Maybe you're not going very fast. They get knocked down. But that's what insurance is for. She gets hurt, go to the doctor, insurance company gets the bill. Yeah, this guy gets fired, probably. But he could have said, you know what? I looked in my rearview mirror, and I didn't see anything back there. What do you want me to do? But on the other hand, if he really did hit her, maybe hit her on purpose. That's something I, you know, we have to be open to as well. Very sad. Just, just very sad. All right, moving on. I want to talk about the boy in the box. And what else do I have? Uh, do I have something else? Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get to that or not. 
Um, boy in, oh, okay. Sheree uh, is getting out. That's, uh, she's had enough for tonight. Thank you for moderating, uh, Sheree. I will take it over from here. Thanks, uh, for doing your duty tonight. The boy in the box. Philadelphia police on Thursday, last Thursday, identified the boy in the box who was found beaten to death in 1957, but said proving who killed four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli, what a name, will be an uphill battle. Detectives have found the family and know who the boy's now deceased parents are, but they stopped short of disclosing who they believe is responsible for his death. The child lived in West Philadelphia near Market and 61st Streets. The case remains open and police still hope to someday pin the murder on a suspect but Smith tamped down this and uh, Captain Police Captain st- tamped down expectations. It's going to be an uphill battle for us to de- definitely or definitively determine who caused this child's death. If this technology had been available to us 20 years ago, it might be a completely different story. Because once you identify who the child is, you start interviewing family members. Well, at this point in time, a lot of the family members who would have been old enough to have a memory of any incident that might have occurred are normally long gone. The boy was born in January on January 13th, 1953. Police declined to reveal, uh, reveal any details about the fam- victim's family or even characterize the reaction of Joseph's loved ones when detectives told them about their findings. Joseph has a number of siblings who are living, and it is out of respect for them that their parents' information remain confidential. Do we know who is responsible for Joseph's death? The answer at this time is unfortunately no. We have our suspicions as to who may be responsible, but it would be re- irresponsible for me to share those suspicions as this remains an active and ongoing criminal investigation. Detectives hope the news of the boy's identification will jar someone's decades-old memory and lead to an avalanche of tips from the public. We're going to filter through each and every one of those tips, and in that avalanche, there might be a diamond in the rough. I'm hopeful there's somebody who... And is in their late or mid to late seventies, perhaps eighties, who remembers that child. The child did live un- until a little past the age of four years old, so there would have been somebody out there that would have seen this child, perhaps another family member that hasn't stepped forward, for uh, possibly a neighbor, a neighbor that remembers seeing that child, remembers whatever was occurring at that particular household. The break in one of America's oldest cold cases and investigations came via recent DNA technology breakthroughs. And with the assistance of volunteer sleuths who helped police narrow down the victim's possible relatives, the body of a little boy then believed to be four to six years old was found wrapped in a blanket in a cardboard box in Philadelphia's Fox chase neighborhood on February 25th, 1957 for the past six and a half decades. Not only has no one ever been held to account for a slang, but before Thursday morning, the victim's name also wasn't even known generations of Philadelphians had come to know the young victim simply as the boy in the box. The cold case warmed in recent years when volunteers with the, with the Vidoc Society, a Philadelphia, Philadelphia crime-solving club, solving club, extended a crucial helping hand to police. The nonprofit society is made up of former law enforcement personnel and forensic professionals who share an interest in unsolved crimes. After years of investigation, two ex exhumations of the boy's body yielded DNA samples. The genetic material made its way to the famed forensic genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick likened the boy's remains and available DNA to confetti, making her task nearly impossible. This was the most challenging case of my whole career. 
It took two and a half years to get the DNA in shape for proper testing. It was so bad. Her DNA and genealogical analysis helped develop a list of the boy's possible relatives thanks to public thanks to publicly available genetic records like 23andMe. Police then were able to find Joseph's family and even his birth certificate. You get a list of matches that are related to the boy, and basically if they're related to him, they're related to each other. So what we do is we take those people, and it's like a big Sudoku puzzle where you move them around and you use tools, and finally you get a consistent picture of who is related to two to whom and how it all fits together. And the one spot that's missing is the one person you're trying to identify. There's no question. It is Joseph Augustus Zarelli. No question. Bill Fleischer, uh, co-founder of the Vidoc Society, said he has been giving great thought in recent days to police investigators who worked the case over the decades but died before Thursday's announcement. I feel their souls are standing here at this moment with us, said Fleischer. Now our lad is no longer that boy in the box. He has a name. I was raised to believe that when you say the name out loud, that person still lives in spirit among us. Remains of the boy in the box rest at Ivy Hill Cemetery with a headstone identifying him as America's unknown child. The headstone will still be changed to add his name. Joseph Augustus Zarelli will no longer be the, that boy in the box, will no longer be unknown, Fleischer said. Um, the big question, once some, something that is not mentioned in this article at all, now, of course, there have been several articles written. Maybe it's in some other uh, article. Um, there's no reports on whether this family ever reported Joseph Augustus Sorelli missing back in 1957. That is the glaring omission as something that I try to do with the Unfound Nows is, and that's one of the reasons I read actual articles during the Unfound Nows, is when you go through an article, look for those things that are missing. Maybe like elephants in or elephants in the room or elephants in the rooms or elephant in the rooms, uh, whatever, however you want to put it. And I would say that the elephant in the room regarding uh, this particular disappearance uh, or death of this young boy is that we don't have any information in this very complete story about what the family did back in 1957 when Joseph went missing. Now, given that I cover disappearances, and you know what we usually think about people who have loved ones go missing and never contact police, we know what we usually think. We also know what we usually think when we hear about children going missing or being found deceased is that um, we automatically think that the parents did it. And so I can't help but think that's what happened to Joseph Augustus Zarelli at this point, reading the article the way I did. I would think that if uh, back at the time in 1957, if the Zarelli family had filed a report and done interviews and done searches for their missing son, that it would have been in this article. Because this is a very fairly complete article. This is an article. This isn't a, uh, wasn't a nationally written article. This was actually a local article from the Philadelphia area. So you tend to get more concise, more complete information in local news than you get in national news if it was some national organization covering this. 
you would think they would have included, well, back in the 1950s, the Zarellis were up in arms. They were posting flyers. They were going door to door. They were knocking door to door. They were just uh, heartbroken over the disappearance of their four-year-old son, Joseph. Nothing like that in this article. So I got to say, at this point, I got to believe that the family did this. And then maybe this is, we might compare this, um, if I can just say this publicly, we might compare compare this to a disappearance we didn't cover that long ago, and that would be Brenda Davidson, where we had her sister Lisa on. And it was like Brenda was here one day and she was gone the next and the parents didn't want to talk about it. And the sister, the older sisters didn't want to talk about it. Everybody was completely mum. Which I know all seemed very odd to us when that episode came out a couple months ago. This kind of sounds like that. And very sad, but in, in dare I say it, when I in reading this article you kind of get the feeling that this is what like the police are trying to say in so many words anyway, when they start talking, well, we'd like to talk to some more family members. And unfortunately the parents are dead and, and all of this. Um, This is where my head goes regarding this boy in the box. In addition, I looked him, he wasn't in the name database either. Now maybe, I'm open to the idea that maybe since now he's been identified, they automatically went in there and took him out. But my experience tells me NamUs doesn't work that quickly because his name just came out the end of last week. And already in here on Monday, they actually went in and, and took him off their register. I Just doing unfound nows the way I've been doing for two and a half years now. I've found many that I thought I was going to cover, and then it turns out that those disappearances had already been solved, the remains had already been found, or the person was found alive, and the person was still in the NamUs database. That Joseph Zarelli was not in the database is telling. And it very well may be that because there was never a missing persons report filed for him back in 1957, which then also would be very telling if the family never did that. You just kind of get a feel for these things after a while, especially when it's children. If Joseph Augustus Zarelli was 19 years old and went and 19 years old in 1957 and went missing, then we might think, ah, the parents uh, just, he just took off and, and that was that. But a four-year-old, that stretches my imagination uh, that uh, a family wouldn't do anything if they were not involved. So I'm inclined to believe that like so many children all over the world, when they have violence in their lives, whether they end up being deceased or not, it's usually parents. It's usually family members. It's just it's horrible. So we'll see what uh, happens uh, with this. I don't know uh, what they're going to be able to do um, in, in trying to resolve this. Of course, they're going to, now that they know that Joseph has siblings, you know, I don't know. 
if the siblings knew something, would they not have come forward years ago to say, you know what? I had this brother and he went missing. And I think that my parents did something. We also have to wonder, he was found, I think, in the general location of where the Zarellis lived in Philadelphia in the 1950s. And nobody put this all together. Once again, why? Probably because the family never told police. If the time... They had told police, then as soon as this boy would have been found in 1957, could they have not put this together fairly quickly? So there's also, I think, a main giveaway that this was done by somebody in the family, and everybody just kept mum about it. And it happens more than would probably ever like to admit. All right, moving on. Uh, I got about six minutes to go before I want to talk about Friday's episode. 50 years later, Nancy Carol Fitzgerald was a 16-year-old when she disappeared the day after Easter Sunday in 1972. Now, over 50 years later, authorities believe her remains have been recovered. According to the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office, skeletal remains first discovered near the Henry Hudson Bike Trail in the borough of Atlantic Highlands in 1988 were recently retested and have been positively identified as belonging to Fitzgerald. Today's announcement marks the culmination of decades of hard work by a network of individuals whose collective determination and ingenuity proved inexhaustible. Wow, that is a statement. Uh, In addition to being a testament to their efforts, it's also reflective of our firm commitment to uncover the truth and serve the interests of justice, regardless of how much time has passed or what investigative obstacles might ever stand in the way. According to the Monmouth County uh, Police Organization office, the teenager's remains were found during a community cleanup event alongside Bayside Drive on December 10th, 1988. New Jersey State Forensic Anthropologist Donna Fontana studied the grim discovery and determined that the remains belonged to a white female between 18 or 15 and 18 years old. The scientist placed the time of her death at some point in the mid-70s. The MCPO and Atlantic Highlands Police Department began a joint investigation into the find, but no identification was made for years, and the case went cold. Sometime in the 1990s, a DNA profile was developed for comparison purposes, the prosecutor's office said, but that profile wasn't particularly helpful at first. Then in uh, 2020, MCPO Lieutenant Andrea Tazi and Detective Detective Wayne Rayner tried a different avenue of investigation. They contacted the Virginia-based DNA analysis firm Bode Technology and asked for help. After an advanced forensic genealogical review of the case, the company said they were able to identify a distant relative of Fitzgerald's who lived in Georgia. That relative later agreed to an interview and also gave the company her mother's DNA. The additional genetic information was used to track down yet another relative, this time a woman living in Pennsylvania. The second woman turned out to be Fitzgerald's younger sister. And the story was, let me go down here, was that uh, unfortunately this missing young woman had had a barbiturate overdose at one time. She had drug-related arrests. And um, this uh, woman, her sister, gave evidence on her adult drug supplier that led to his arrest. The 16-year-old went missing soon after. In those days, if you were missing, you were a runaway, especially if she was a troubled girl, the sister said. We never realized she wasn't coming back. To date, authorities are unsure of of exactly when or how Fitzgerald died. 
The investigators note that such an inquiry is the obvious next step. Now, the big difference I see uh, between this young woman's remains being identified and the boy in the box's remains and the difficulties between each is that this young woman's remains were found 18 miles away from where she lived. So I think we can understand that at the time when her remains were found, and this is before DNA and everything else, that it wasn't easy to put it all together. They probably knew that there was this missing young woman from 18, 15, 18 year, uh, miles away, but there are probably a lot of 18-year-old missing girls on lists all over the place. In contrast to this four-year-old boy who was missing and found in the same neighborhood where his family was living. They're two totally, totally different situations. So I can understand why it took all these years to identify this particular girl because her remains were found a ways away from where she lived. And so nobody's automatically thinking that this teenage girl who disappeared 18 miles away is the girl who we're looking at right now who was found. And it took science to prove that. Whereas with uh, the boy in the box, it's a totally different situation. So, but uh, I should state, though, this is another uh, disappearance uh, that was not on NamUs. So as much as we all love NamUs and they're doing nice work and everything, we have to realize that there are limitations to that database. And as I remind everybody, there are way more disappearances out there than are listed on NamUs. And that's going to be a, probably going to be the, the way it always is. It's just I don't think they'll ever be able to catch up with all of the missing persons cases that exist. All right, let's move on. I got about five minutes left. Let me preview this Friday's episode. It's going to be two-parter. First part this Friday, December 16th. Second part next Friday, December 23rd. The reason I'm doing this is because there's a lot to cover. I did two interviews that are fairly long, and I have a lot to talk about my uh, the work that I've been doing behind the scenes regarding both of these disappearances. They are the disappearances of Richard Keith Call and Cassandra Lee Haley. And in when they were around, uh, he went by Keith. She went by Sandra. They are part of what is now known as the Colonial Parkway Murders that occurred between 1986 and 1989 in the Newport News, Grafton, Virginia area. There was a uh, two women who were a couple who were murdered in 1986. There was a 20-year-old who was with a 14-year-old girl, a guy 20 years old with a 14-year-old girl, who were, who were murdered in 1987. And then in 1988, Keith and Sandra went missing. They are true missing persons cases. Keith's car was found on the Colonial Parkway near kind of the area where these murders happened. And then in 1989, a man and woman were murdered uh, north of this location. Uh, they were going on a trip and their car was found in a rest stop and uh, their remains were found not too far away. This all happened uh, for Keith and Sandra. They went missing in the early morning hours of April 10th of 1988. 
And so uh, this part one and part two are being called the Colonial Parkway Disappearances. So instead of murders, uh, we're only going to be talking and analyze, only going to be talking about and analyzing the disappearances. However, in part two, I will at least give a general rundown of those murders that are also still unsolved. Now, you should know the general consensus is that they are all related, that whoever caused Keith and Sandra's disappearances also murdered all those other people. Kind of goes back and forth. It'll in the end, it'll be up for all of you to determine, but we're gonna, I'm going to mainly stick to those two disappearances because that's what I do. And I've been working on this since about August. And the way that happened was somehow I I remember what happened. I was up in Illinois for uh the disc golf tournament up there seeing my buddy Dave and his family staying at his place. And while I was there, I happened upon, for some reason, the Wikipedia page for the Colonial Parkway murders. I'd heard about them many times before. Murder's not my thing, so I really really didn't know what to think. But then in just reading the page, I discovered, wait a minute. Two of these murders aren't actually murders, but they're disappearances. And that caught my attention. And it was at that point that I said, you know, I'm going to look into these a little more deeply. And then it was into August when I decided, you know what, I think I want to do a lot more work on these disappearances, really going back and see who I can talk to, see if I can find some witnesses and everything else. Because I thought this would be a good way to illustrate how disappearances are different from murders. And given that I've covered so many disappearances, maybe this is a way to kind of, uh, um, you know, look at the work that everybody else does, has done over the years. The FBI, books have been written. There have been some series on the Colonial Parkway murders. And um, see if what the conclusions that they've come to makes any sense. And uh, maybe to try to look at them in a different way, specifically the disappearances, and maybe possibly show, maybe, that these disappearances aren't related to those murders at all. And maybe, in fact, none of them are related to each other. And I think also what... uh, kind of goaded me on is the more I looked at what the other the work that everybody else has done over the years I was not really that impressed with it so that also spurred me on to do this so the guests are going to be uh in this two-part episode uh a brother and sister the only sister and a brother of Keith Call uh Joey's Call Canada and Chris Call and then the sister one of the sisters of Sandra Haley Terry Haley Holman. So over the next two weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. So you might want to start uh, reading up on the Colonial Parkway murders, what was going on at the time. And uh, that's what we're doing. The disappearances of Keith Call and Sandra Haley right smack in the middle of whatever was going on there in the, in the uh, Newport News area of Virginia in the late 80s. 
So that's all I have for tonight. Thank you all for uh, watching. There wasn't any comments here toward the end of I hope the chat room was working. I don't know what happened to everybody. But um, that's what we're doing this Friday. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unfound Live. Give it a thumbs up if you haven't already. If you're listening to this as a podcast, please uh, give Unfound Live a thumbs up, five-star review, whatever you got to do. And you will hear and see me again on Friday for part one of the Colonial Parkway disappearances. Thank you, everyone. Everybody have a great night. And I enjoyed uh, doing this all for you. Uh, Charles, good seeing you in here tonight. I hope to see your mother while I am up in Pennsylvania. Good night, everyone.